Made locally in Bath. This is Radio Bath. So welcome along. It's Richard Bovelson here until 12 o'clock today. And on a story to tell, I have Paul Lang. So from a Devonport dockyard to a Navy frigate ship to the BBC to over 100 productions worldwide and even knowing King Charles a little bit. Uh, let's not forget being a delivery driver during lockdown too. Let's just say Paul has lived a very varied life and we're very lucky to have a chat with him today. So good morning, Paul. And how are you? Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, that's quite an introduction. Uh, I didn't think I'd get any of those titles. Well, you never know, do you? I'm intrigued at where you are as well. So what are all the pictures that you've got around you? Uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm in, well, it's more of a dog kennel, but it's also my office. Uh, you may well hear the dog a bit later. Uh, pictures of family, uh, Laurel and Hardy, uh, just stuff, memorabilia, really. Just um, stuff. My girlfriend calls it uh, ethnic tat, which I'm not allowed to. Uh, <laughs> she wants me to throw most of it out. But I've gathered from various places in the world. Oh, it looks looks amazing. So was there anything that I missed out on the intro then that you, you have done? Um, not really. Only my current job. I'm currently a community police officer. Oh, yeah. So how did you become a community police officer? We're going to work backwards here a little bit. Yeah, you're going to work backwards. Uh, that led on... Or it, it came forward from Tesco because right. during the pandemic, uh, filming completely finished um, and the rug got pulled under my feet and I couldn't sit at home. Uh, so I I did a short spell working at Middlesex Hospital as a porter uh, and then uh, I joined Tesco as a delivery driver. But I, I loved the community side of it and I thought I was giving something back and I sort of reached the end of the road with film and it was sort of drying up a little bit. It's all done a different way now. Uh, so I just thought, well, why not become a community police officer? And I absolutely love it. I was going to say, how do you find it? It's very different than what you've done before. Yeah, it is. It is challenging. But having done documentaries for a large majority of my life, the skill I had was to talk to people. And I find that that skill sort of being lost. People are so buried in their phones and they won't talk to each other. That just having that face to face with people is something people don't get very often especially from a, a police officer because you know most of our guys are on response so it's very rare they see yeah. some plodding around the street which is what i do uh, and i love it uh and i'm you know i'm i'm fit as a butcher's dog now i tell you with all the steps i'm doing i can say how many steps do you do on average a day then do you have a uh, count or anything i do uh, i expect twenty thousand if i'm on foot patrol and if i'm on the bike i cycle about 20 miles blimey that so. is uh that is going some and whereabouts do you do that all over london i'm literally I I can I can patrol. It's it's uh, we're based in one place, but we can patrol all over London. So it's it's quite a free reign, and it's it's good. I enjoy it. Okay, so you're currently a community police officer. We're going to chat about the uh, delivery driving a little bit later, and then before that, I never know what quite the right title is. So for for Mary, who I interviewed recently, who I know you know as well, um, she's a focus puller, and I had to Definitely. kind of find out what that meant. Yeah. Um, and when I was looking on IMDb for yourself, you looked like you had about 20 different jobs. Yeah, it's it's all those things you saw as a kid going up at the end of the screen. You think, what on earth do they do? Um, I ended up doing quite a few of them. So I'm primarily an electrician. So I was an electrician in the shipyard. Then I joined the BBC. So I joined the BBC as an electrician. But on a film set, uh, electricians are called best boys, gaffers. And that was what they are. And then I moved on to the camera department and became clapper loader, focus puller, 
camera operator, uh, but I specialize in documentaries. So I guess I became an assistant cameraman on documentaries and then became another another title, uh, DOP, director of photographer on um, documentaries. Right. And in those days, it was all on film, 10 minute magazines. Um, yeah, I was uh, reading that. Explain more about that. I, I didn't really understand it particularly, if I'm honest. Uh, well, you know, all the old pictures you see of a camera with the old reel on the top. Yeah. Uh, on documentaries is primarily 16 mil. It would last 10 minutes. So right. that focuses the mind on what you're going to shoot. Whereas, you know, now you can stick a card in a camera. It can last up to two hours. So you just tend to shoot everything. Whereas the director would really have to focus on what they wanted. And also it was expensive. And, you know, you could go away to, you know, the Far East for three weeks and not know what you'd shot because you weren't going to get it developed until you got home. So it's sort of concentrated, it made you get it right, that's for sure. So do you feel now that the standards are not necessarily what they used to be? I think the standards are good. I mean, there's fantastic films and documentaries being made, but I think it's so accessible now. And I think people have accepted, uh, without, set, without sort of putting people down, people have accepted lower standards. The good is still good, but I think there's so much material now. You know, you can wave your phone around and you can get it shown on TV. It doesn't even yeah. have to be up the right way. They just put blurred edges left and right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's completely changed. Media's changed. So, you know, uh, I, and I changed with it. And, um, you know, I decided to step out when I did. Uh, I just sort of, and also the crews were getting smaller, especially on documentaries. You go away with a sound man, an assistant cameraman and a researcher, and now, you know, people are sometimes going out on their own and doing everything. Right. Which, you know, there's there's no fun in that, really. So when you were making documentaries, and say we'll talk about some, some more in detail later, was it the scenario that you were simply behind the camera? Were you doing much of the production behind it or choosing what was being shot? How did that work? No, you would, you would, uh, I only tended to work with people I knew, directors I knew, which was great. So you sort of, you can anticipate what they want. But uh, a good... A good director, uh, always remember, I worked with uh, Alan Parker once and he said uh, that the best director just works with people who know what they're doing and let them get on with it. So they don't micromanage. And I tended to work with directors who didn't do that, who were great, and just trusted me to do what I did. And you get a sixth sense of what they want. So you finish the sequence and then you say, well, what did we get? Have we got enough? Uh, and if you needed to do a bit more, you do a bit more. But it was and quite, it's quite organic. Yeah. So I know it's kind of almost a very difficult question to say. It's a bit like choosing your favourite child. But did you have a favourite director to work with and, and why? Well, it's my, I'm going to have to say my partner, Lou. I met her on a film uh, and I've done lots of films with her. We've sort of roughed it in India and been all over the world. Uh, so and it's that it's that sixth sense that a, a lot of directors need a monitor to look at to see what's he doing, what's he doing. You work with some directors who know what you're doing without looking at a monitor and mm. they just look at the action. Uh, and my partner does that. And I've worked with a few other directors who do that as well. They just trust you to get on with it and they concentrate on what they're actually seeing. They're not looking at a monitor, so they're not detached from it. Right. Which is an old fashioned way of doing it. I mean, we never had monitors. Um, directors just used to look at the scene and the actors. Yeah. And then look across at the cameraman and say, Was that any good? And you just go, Yes or no. <laughs> and um, they would then trust what you are saying. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so that, that must be quite difficult because I, I know for myself, so I'm a dance teacher normally, 
and I run a lot of the business by myself. Uh, my wife comes in and she's also a dance teacher. And then we have what I like to discuss professional discussions about yeah. how things are happening. Um, yeah. how, do you have many, many of those? Uh, yeah, I do have professional discussions. Uh, it's, it's funny because I'm not, I'm not the most technical, not the most technical cameraman there was. Uh, I'm, I, I, I find out what buttons I need to press. I don't need to know what all the buttons do because I'm old fashioned. I'm just get the exposure right, get the focus right, make a nice frame. I mean, I always said that it, it doesn't matter what you're shooting on. It all has to fit into that rectangle. It's either nice or it's not nice. And you could have the best camera in the world with the most expensive lenses in the world. But if you haven't framed it rightly, it's still going to look awful. So you would always have discussions about how to frame things. And it's, it's important not to dig your heels in because you think, oh, I, I know how to do this. And then someone can say something and think, all oh, right, I'll give it a go. Then you look at it and think, God, it's amazing. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah. You just have to keep an open mind. Same with everything I do. But, you know, it's, I think it's those discussions need to be had. Uh, and I, I, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed having sort of happy mistakes, as it were. And you think, well, what, why, yeah, why don't we put him over there? Why doesn't he look out the other side of frame? And it worked. So I was looking on your website and obviously you've done a lot of the film stuff on there as well, but there's other things that you do as well. Um, so it put on there about you're kind of like an almost a little bit of a Forrest Gump type of character. Um, so you enjoy your uh, running too. I do enjoy my running. Uh, I love it. I think it's, I discovered it in sort of 2016, I guess. I used to take the mick out of runners and they go past me and go, oh, what are they doing? And I got bitten by the bug. Um, I'm not very fast, but I I just love it. It's great for your headspace. You never feel worse when you get back. Uh, I never thought I'd run a marathon. I've, I've run two. Uh, and I've sort of, I just loved it. I think the first time I ran the London Marathon, it was almost euphoric. It's, it's you just find yourself welling up all the time. You think, I can't believe I'm doing this. Because as a kid, you you see them going over tower bridge and you see uh you see all the people running for charity and i thought my god i'm here i've done it uh and I, I just wish all that public spirit that was bottled up at that time um was kept because it was amazing and i was on a high for for ages i just just the whole spirit of everyone all, all there for a good cause and i just thought it was amazing and i know one of the major difficulties when you have a big event like that is that you do all the training for months beforehand you then have the event, and I've had this when I've done dance competitions in the past, and then you have the whole, the whole of what do I do now? Mm. How did you get get past that? Yeah, you do. You you like you said with your dancing, you do, you do have that oh, what now moment, but you just keep running again, and you recover for a couple of weeks, and you go out and do another five k or ten k, and you think, yeah, I know, I remember why I like doing this, and then you just sort of look towards the next event but um it's it's just something you get up in the morning and you, you know what it's like sometimes you struggle with think oh my god am i gonna put my trainers on and go out as soon as you're out there running you think yeah this is yeah. why uh and it doesn't have to be very far it doesn't have to be very fast um but you always come back feeling much better and a part of that experience from doing the marathon always comes back hmm. Uh, and it's you, you you know it's and you see people running sometimes with the t-shirt on at the marathon you ran and you sort of give yourselves a thumbs up and but was there a charity you ran for as well i ran for amnesty 
the first time I ran for Young Minds the second time. Um, and I'm running currently for a, a the, it's called the Dylan Strong Foundation, which is a, a, a young lad who passed away and his parents started uh, a charity to encourage um, hospitals to encourage kids to eat well, oh. uh, just to use nutrition as part of their well-being. So I might I, I might be running the Ealing Half Marathon dressed as a large broccoli in September. <laughs> okay, so that lends me to why a large broccoli? Well, because it's one of the characters. My partner drew oh, okay. Bobby Broccoli, and then they're trying to encourage kids to to eat healthily. And I think they've got a big foam costume of a broccoli. So uh, I'm going to try and purloin that and run around the streets of Ealing with that. I'm going to have to, the trouble is I'm going to have to practice running in that. So it's going it's, to be. I often say uh, in the dance world that, you know, if people are using their arms and being expressive with their arms in a dance hall, that is normal. <laughs> if you did that walking down the street, that would be classed as slightly unusual yeah. running the london marathon or surrounded by people doing you know everybody in costumes that's normal as you yeah. say running around ealing in a broccoli suit by yourself <laughs> yeah. might get the odd look yeah thing is i'm gonna have to practice running in it because the first day i run can't be the day no. it, you know but uh yeah so i might be running around the uh towpath around the river Thames, dressed as a broccoli uh, so if you do so what do you want people to say to you if anybody sees you running <laughs> as a broccoli <laughs> is there anything they can say i don't even like broccoli so i don't um i don't know i just uh yeah don't be frightened i'm i'm running for charity it's not a, a giant broccoli monster running down the road <laughs> it's it's good it, it's uh running is like a little escape and um and it's good for your headspace it always clears you up that is amazing and last thing i'm going to say in this little section here is uh we mentioned your dog earlier so i believe you just qualified as a therapy dog what what is that yeah uh it's it's probably the only exam she's ever going to pass in her life um it's a sort of scruffy cavapoo thing uh and i take her down the care home uh near us uh and i was worried uh she was going to be too barky or jumpy she's full of energy but uh the nurse down there said that they don't want a dog that just sits on the bed and goes to sleep. They want something that's active and stimulates people. Yeah. Uh, so therapy dogs nationwide who uh, examined her, uh, I had to take her down for an examination and a test and they pulled her ears and pulled her tail and dropped a sandwich on the floor and see if she sort of go frantic. Um, I think it's the best behavior she's ever been for an hour. Uh, she passed uh, and now she's going down to the care home whenever I can fit it in, which is great. I get just a, as much out of it as the dog. Yeah. Uh, it's just brilliant. No, I know there's a, a number of local places in Trowbridge, which is where I'm, I'm based, is that uh, there's a number of volunteers that go in and help at the care homes. And and I've heard a number of people saying how much they get out themselves of, of going yeah. in and playing games with people. Yeah, yeah. And, and lockdown, I know it was hard for everyone, but I wasn't even allowed to take the dog and show her through the window. I mean, it was just heartbreaking, really. Yeah, but since since then and been taking her back, it's just been fantastic. That sounds uh, fantastic. They, they all know her, and uh, her pictures are on the wall, and they got pictures of her in her in their rooms and stuff. So it's, it's and what's her name? Millie. Millie the dog. Yeah, Millie the dog. 
Oh, sounds amazing. Well, we're going to have a little break for music. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about some of your specific projects you did whilst you were a cameraman or cinematographer. I think I'll do that right. Uh, so we'll be back right after this. Radio Bath. So we're back. It's Richard Boverson here until midday today. So on a story to tell, we have Paul Lang here. And we're going to talk about some of the projects that Paul has been involved with over the years while he was behind the lens. So the first one we're going to talk about is, I believe you went to Haiti. And did a project out there. How was that, Paul? Yeah, I, uh, I did. One of those weird things, you get a phone call and the next thing you find yourself um, stood in Port-au-Prince uh, amongst rubble um, with a correspondent from Washington called Sebastian Walker. Uh, and we were doing a retrospective. It was about eight months after the earthquake, but the place was still utterly destroyed. And how, when uh, was this earthquake? I'm trying to remember. It's a while ago now. Oh, God, racking my brains. You'll probably have to correct me, but I think it was 2003, okay. I think. And this was the big earthquake. Time. This was the big yeah. earthquake, wasn't it? Yeah, I think up to 350,000 people got killed, uh, which is uh, mind-numbing, really. Uh, but just the rubble and just seeing... Uh, I, I'd been there before in a previous documentary about AIDS, uh, and I'd seen Port-au-Prince, and I saw it as a... It was just, it looked like the whole city was just barely staying up. Uh, and then imagining that earthquake hitting the magnitude it did and just seeing the devastation. I mean, we were stood in sort of the belly of the cathedral and the whole thing had gone down. And, you know, and just sort of thousands of people underneath the rubble. Um, but, you know, our, our story was sort of retrospective about the lack of aid that came down, how long it took to get there. Uh, the UN weren't covering themselves in glory uh, there was a cholera outbreak when we were there um just seeing the desperation but at the same time seeing the amazing things as all these sort of disasters bringing out the best in people as well and that's what we were trying to sort of focus on and one of the things i suppose that's quite difficult is you're surrounded by all that devastation where were you staying presumably it wasn't a tent <laughs> no we weren't staying in a tent because it was the, because it was a little bit after the earthquake, they'd actually got some sort of infrastructure going. So we were staying uh, further out of Port-au-Prince, where some buildings were still standing and higher up. Uh, so we did we did have a, a floor to sleep on and electricity, um, but it was still dysfunctional as a city. Um, but yeah, we we were lucky enough not to be sleeping in tents, and you know most people were just still sleeping under the stars. Yeah, that sounds uh, a challenging time. Yeah, no, it, it it was. And you sort of been to quite a few disaster zones, um, Bandar Aceh in Indonesia and places like that. And you do come back and it is a real leveller and you do have to sort of catch yourself when you start looking at the gas bill and going, oh, bloody hell, it's the end of the world. It's not where you've just been is the end of the world, not looking at a gas bill. And you, you do have to pull yourself back and remind yourself what it was like when you were there. And, and hopefully you just sort of keep hold of some of that. It is all about perspective, isn't it, on that regards? Yeah. And, you know, it's not saying, you know, you shouldn't be concerned. It doesn't make you any worse a person. But you do think, God, I was there last week. I saw this. And it, that's, with air travel, the next minute you're home and you're opening mail. Oh my God, I was stood on a mass grave two days ago. Yeah. And it's you do have to catch yourself. Yeah, it's really difficult. I was chatting to somebody the other day about 
um, people feeling bad about certain things. And there's that classic thing that somebody says is, you know, at least you're not this person, at least you're not in the rubble or whatever. So therefore you don't feel entitled, you shouldn't feel entitled to feel bad about the gas bill. Um, mm. However, that principle doesn't quite work because otherwise there's just one person out of the 8 billion people on this earth that are entitled to feel bad about things. Yeah, it doesn't absolutely. quite work like that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, we've all got our concerns and they're just as valid as everything else. So I think, you know, it's like you said, it's it's circumstances, it's where you are. Um, uh, no, I agree, totally agree with you on that. Now, another project you worked on was Call of the Maestro. Tell us about that. Yeah, I never thought I'd spend a year engrossed in uh, Indian classical music, which is, you know, being a lover of Bruce Springsteen and Johnny Cash, I thought, well, what's, what's going to happen here? Well, we got commissioned to make a film in India over a year following um, uh, maestros and how they train their disciples. And of course, Indian classical music isn't written down. It's all passed down just through teaching. Uh, and about how it was dying out because with technology, kids don't want to spend five years at the feet of a maestro learning how to play the Rudravina or the sitar or the tabla. Uh, but that's what we went to film. And it, it was incredible. We filmed these old maestros living in penury in some next door to a rubbish dump in Mumbai, who was this master tabla player who had all these disciples around him. Um, it, it was it was incredible. We, we filmed someone who played pots. I wish I could remember the name of the pots. He would play pots and we were busy streets outside and all the horns and everything going. But real musicians, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. We spent a year tracking all these people down and basically recording them because they'd never been recorded yeah. uh, and it's it did well at film festivals and stuff but it was one of those things you could just dive into uh there was no agenda uh it was going to go to cinema so we didn't have to worry about selling toothpaste in commercial breaks or anything like that it was just about the art uh and something you wouldn't see on tv um and it something i never thought i would get interested in but it was incredible it was absolutely incredible do you, do you still listen to Indian classical music now then, or is it always I, Bruce Springsteen? It's it's mostly Bruce Springsteen, but um, no, I don't, but I appreciate it. And if it's funny because if I hear a bit, I go, oh, I know who that is. And that's one of those weird things about being a documentary filmmaker. You just go, oh, why do I know that? Oh yeah, I film that. Um, but it's, I do appreciate it now. Uh, and it's, it's just, you just find yourself in these situations that you would be, to get from A to B is just as just as memorable as what was in A and what was in B. I mean, you're on a in, packed in a train with people passing grandmothers in a window, and your camera boxes are all on the roof and all sorts of stuff. And you think, God, how, how does it work? But it does, and you get there and you set up and you film this fantastic woman playing, you know, a tabla or something. I mean, it was um, India's incredible. I don't know if you've been there or not. It's, it's I haven't. No, I really need to go. Oh, it's just for everything you can say, you can say the exact opposite and it's still true. I mean, it's complete madness and infuriating. You just turn your head and there's something so amazing while you're stood in the same spot. Think, God, what a place this is. The closest I've been is Sri Lanka um, yeah. many, many years ago, going through Colombo. And yeah, a similar experience I had there. So we were on the, the bus going to the hotel and crossing the road was a crocodile. Which, of course, you know, happens every day. <laughs> Nobody blinked an eye. 
just as Crocodile walked across in front mm. of us all. And it was incredibly poor. This is at the time of the Tamil Tigers and the following day when we visited something, it got blown up. So it's mm. very high security all around. But one of the major things that sticks in my head from that is looking at the train and seeing the children going to school and they were all immaculate. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely yeah. immaculate. And you think, you know, the, the pride that they took in making sure they were pristine, even mm. in the slums that they were living in, I thought was just incredible. Mm. Yeah, we, we. It's interesting you said that because while we were in India, the the um, amazing lady who had financed the film asked us if we'd make a charity film while we were there. So we made a film for a charity called Pratham, which encourages um, uh, homeless street kids in India to learn how to read. And it's exactly that they all had. They they lived on a rubbish tip, but they all went to school in their school uniform. Yeah, and it it was in, it was incredible. And we just filmed at their schools when they were they had street schools. They set up just by the side of the road underneath the motorway with a blackboard and they teach them how to read. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was just amazing. No, it is phenomenal. And again, you look at some people that are in first world countries and, and I say worrying about the gas bill and then you kind of go to the other extreme. But still what we have as our problems are actually real problems still. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think we should ever go away from that from that fact. But no. uh, there we go. Uh, absolutely not. Um, another one, this is all quite heavy topics, these, but uh, Burma, Civil War. How yeah. was that? That was when I, I was at the BBC when I first started. Um, and I was asked if I wanted to go to Burma, as it was then. I think it was still called Burma. It wasn't called Miramar. But the it was a history series for uh, Time Watch, not to be connected or confused with Time Team. But it was a World War II film about how the Karen Indians helped us fight the Japanese in the Second World War. And uh, the British government had said to them at the time, uh, you help us fight the Japanese, we'll get you your independence. Uh, when the war finished, cheerio, thanks very much, uh, and left them there. And they were still fighting in 1994, no, 1997, when I went. So ours was taking on the story that they're still there. And some of the veterans who fought in the Second World War had become the village elders. So we were in the jungle uh, fighting. Well, we weren't fighting, we were filming them fighting um, the Burmese government. And it was uh, incredible. It's just one of those things. You just sort of, you're, you're there in the middle of the jungle with all this stuff flying around. Uh, and you, you just pinch yourself. And you think, well, what, how did this happen? I mean, it was just crazy things that you think oh, I'm I'm an electrician from a dockyard in Devonport and now you know so many years later I'm being shot at by Burmese forces in a jungle uh and it's <laughs> it's weird and the next day you you know you you come back and you go on another film and you're filming um horrible histories with Rattus Rattus and it's just one of those weird things you, know? you ever have those moments I, I talked to my my big three children who are all teenagers and I, I call it the smell the roses moment where you just kind of lay back on a field and look up and just smell the roses and take it in effectively. Do you have you had many of those moments in your times? Yeah, no, definitely. I've always, I've never looked at the next job. The job I've enjoyed is always the one I've been on. I'm, I'm not one of those people who's always on the phone while they're away trying to line up the next job. I always treated the job I was on as the most amazing thing I was ever going to do, and it's the last one I'm going to do. And I, I, I never took it for granted. And I always felt, I guess, I had imposter syndrome for a while. I think, what am I doing here? Hmm. So I always treated it, and I always, I always um, 
put my arms around that that film and just thought, God, I'm so lucky to be here. Whether I'm sort of filming a telescope at the top of Mauna Kea on Hawaii or whatever, or you know, I could be filming something up in Teesside or wherever. I, it, I was in the moment all the time. It didn't matter who, where I was. It's what I was doing and who I was with. I think those are the memories I take for me. It's the it's the people I'm with and the experiences I had. Uh, I mean, you know, I've got friends who work on feature films with all these amazing actors and stuff, and I don't think they're as fulfilled as you you are. You know, filming, you know, some of the documentaries I did with no money, uh, you know, sleeping two to a room. Mm. But uh, I always I always threw myself at what I was doing and treated it as my last film. It sounds amazing. I know when I spoke to Mary, she was never sure about what was going to happen next. And it sounds like it's, it is that industry, whatever happens. But we're going to chat about a few more projects when we come back after the break, including a documentary made with King Charles as well, or Prince Charles as he was back then. So uh, we'll be back after this. This is Radio Bath. Right, we're back with Paul Lang. It's Richard Bovelson here until midday today. A story to tell is what we've got, of course, on here on Radio Bath. And we're going to talk about a few other projects for you now, Paul. Okay, so the first one we're going to chat about is Life on the Limits. Tell us what that was all about. Yeah, uh, a Formula One film um, about uh, how safety changed during the 70s and 80s um, uh, for the Americans. Uh, which is always a slightly different experience than working for the Brits. Uh, in what way? Uh, we've got a phrase, I'm not sure you've heard it, they they tend to dig all day in a flower pot. Um, they can make something really, really easy, really, really difficult very quickly. Uh, and they love surrounding themselves in kit and boxes and stuff. Uh, and if there's a harder way to do it, they do tend to do it. That's my experience on documentaries. Uh, so... It was interesting, you know, we fly all the way to Monaco or Abu Dhabi and normally with a with a British production, you'd be you'd be uh, sort of micromanaged and there'd be lots of stuff to do. Whereas you go there and it would just be so well, you know, this guy might turn up, he might not. Uh, maybe we'll do him in Bahrain next month. Well, you know, I, I'm not used to working like that. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, so many fingers and so many pies and it's it's so many chiefs. Uh, so one life on the limit was a bit like that. I did interview some very interesting people and I loved it. Uh, I'm not really into Formula One, but I, f I found the the history of it very interesting. Um, interviewing the people I remember, Emerson Fittipaldi, Jodie Schechter, uh, Jackie Stewart, uh, people I remember sitting down with my dad and watching race around a racing track. Um, and it, that, that I found really interesting, but the sort of the politics of working on an American film is completely different to a British film. I'm trying to work out because I've seen that type of thing. I think I watched the uh, Ed and Senna one, um, and also the so the rivalry between uh, back in the 70s. There was a few drivers had different rivalries, and again, the safety aspect of it was so different back then, and so many more drivers were were dying. Yeah, that's right. And uh, there was um, I'm going to get his name. I think it was Sid Watkins who was a doctor who changed safety completely um, because uh, they, they didn't have any barriers on them. They were driving around a circuit in Germany with trees on the side of the road. Yeah. And uh, at, at that time, they didn't have, um, I think they're called monocoque with all the proper safety on the, the in the in where the driver sits. There was none of that. And they were basically driving around in bombs. The fuel was all around them. Uh, and, you know, they, they were living the playboy lifestyle. There's a fantastic story of James Hunt. They had to find him before the race, sober him up, stick him in the car. 
Um, but you know, it's also corporate now. But I, I, there's nothing better doing a documentary than sat down with somebody who's absolutely fascinating, whether it's a war veteran, uh, a, a racing driver, or somebody who normally starts things off by saying, well, I've got nothing to say. And then you mm -hmm. just sit spellbound by them. Uh, and that's why I loved working on history programs because the, the war veterans and the people who'd experienced stuff, I just felt a privilege to be there turning a camera on in front of them. Um, and that's, that's the privilege of being a documentary cameraman. I mean, I, was, I never took it for granted. Um, I say just Formula One was one thing and then you go off and do something else and you think, well, I know a little bit more about Formula One than I did now. You're learning something every time, aren't you, as well? And that's a nice thing. A bit, a bit like for myself doing these interviews, I'm learning so many things from so many amazingly interesting people. Uh, it broadens your own knowledge. Mm. I mean, it's. Uh, I, di I didn't want to sound uh, so I was putting the Americans down, but they w do work in a completely different way. I mean, I, I know that I've taught myself out of jobs because I've been sat in the interview going, we don't need that. We don't need that. I can do that cheaper. And then you just see them looking at you thinking, does this guy know what he's doing? Whereas I know that I can walk into a room and the first thing I'll do is switch the lights out. And if the natural light's really nice, I'll go, well, turn over. We don't need to surround this person in lights. Yeah. It just raises them. But, you know, they have a way of doing things and, you know, we have a way of doing things. And then luckily I learned off some really good DOPs at Ealing Studios who were very minimal. And it's, it's fantastic. They got in, the, to do in the dance world, we call it cutting out the noise. Um, so repeat that. What, what we we call it? it cutting out the noise. Yeah. So if a sentence can be short, keep it short. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then what, whatever you're saying comes across clearly. Yeah. No, um, I get it. I absolutely get it. So another project you worked on was how the universe works. Now I'm fascinated about how the universe does work, and it still blows my mind to think that we are such a small little planet in such a big place. Um, yeah. How did you get into that then, and how how did that go? Oh, I, I loved it. I did about three series of it and I always came back. Most of it was in America. I always came back scratching my head, uh, knowing less than I did when I went. Uh, like we'd spend two and a half weeks in America talking about dark matter and I still don't know what it is uh, or dark energy. I still don't know what that is. Uh, but you interview some of the most amazing people and go to NASA, JPL, uh, all these scientists all over the place trying to explain the unexplainable. Uh, and I just loved, I loved the vastness of it, about how they couldn't actually describe how big something was or how powerful something was. And, and you go away and you do a whole episode on uh, supermassive black holes and event horizons and spaghettification. You come back just scratching your head going, my God, what was that about? But it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And people who are so excited about science and some great directors who just threw themselves at it. Um, I mean, it's still out there. I, I see it come up on uh, Netflix and all this. Kind of. I think, oh, I worked on that. Hmm. Uh, I think people have this fascination of all that stuff, um, uh, about exoplanets and stuff I'd never heard of. But you would just sort of deep dive into this. And they really didn't dumb it down. It really was complicated. But I loved it. I loved trying to get my head around it. But do you watch any of your stuff back that you've what that you've worked on? Yeah, sometimes sometimes I do. Um, it's funny, some stuff just pops up every now and again, and it's sort of you see it on on Netflix or uh, lots of the Amazon or something. So, oh, that's a series I worked on, uh, and you have a little quick look and think, oh, I remember that. I remember where I was. Uh, 
but it's like I've said before, I, I remember I remember the people more than the program, as it were. I remember the, the scientist I was interviewing or the astronaut I interviewed. Uh, and my memory couldn't recall what episode that was. I just remember that person. Yeah, I mean, this has been recorded in June 2023 and England have just lost the first game of Ashes cricket, unfortunately. Um, and they interviewed Pat Cummings, who was the star batsman at the end of Australia's innings. And they said to him, did you plan to do this? Did you plan to do that? And he generally said the words, I can't remember any of it. <laughs> and he couldn't remember a thing. He was just in the moment doing yeah. it, uh, but yeah. he couldn't remember anything. No, no, I'm, I'm getting worse as well. <laughs> um, just sort of you reminded me of some of the stuff I've worked on. Oh God, yeah, I did do that. It's uh, uh yeah, it's a real trip down memory lane. Now the last one we're going to chat about very briefly on this one is uh, it's the wonderful world of Len Goodman. So you did a you did a program with Len. How was sadly no longer with us, but uh, how was Len? I oh, know very sad he's not with us. Uh, a true gentleman. Uh, I, I never followed strictly, but obviously knew who he was. Um and i hadn't done a who do you think you are before uh and when i was asked by a director i worked with a lot uh, michael warding who's a very very good friend asked me to do it and he said i was len goodman and we were just excited because he just thought god he's a national treasure i guess yeah. um he was brilliant and you found out his 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 uh heritage was from poland uh one of his great great uncles was a polish lancer in the cavalry and uh, his family were weavers in the East End, but he was he was just one of those genuine people that we'd be walking around the East End and he would always stop and talk to someone and he'd always sign autographs. He'd always have a picture taken. He wasn't at all grand. And uh, well, it was just it was hard going anywhere with him because you sort of he was always stopping. But what a gentleman. And we filmed at his dance club or his dance academy. Ah, that was incredible. Absolutely fantastic. Well, the impact that he would he's had on the dance world is incredible. Um, he has changed the the world of dance forever. Yeah, just him personally. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know his history. Obviously, I did a bit of research before I started working with him. But it's only when you look back how long because he didn't start till later in life, did he? No. The side. Uh, I don't think he started. Um, what was in his fifties even before yeah. he started the TV side of it. But he just took to it. I mean, he was he was a natural on camera. Very he was. Um, we did a little um, video in our dance class. So when we, this is just the day after he sadly passed away. And uh, we we did a little video. And when we count in, we count in five, six, seven, eight. And then you start. <laughs> so yeah. I got the class. I, I filmed the class. And I went, right, we're just going to do this. So we went five, six. And then everyone just shouted, seven <laughs> and then eight and then we started dancing and it's one of the most popular videos i've put out there in years brilliant. Um, brilliant. And people will remember him uh, you know it's like my, my parents funny because they they sort of when i was filming never knew where i was what i was doing but i told them i was working with len goodman and it was uh you know oh then they're telling everyone i'm working with len goodman didn't yeah. matter that in haiti or in a war zone i'm working with len goodman it's fantastic uh and I can see why. I mean, he was just such a gentleman and uh, one of those very memorable films. Uh, you just look forward to getting up in the morning and going to work with him. There are some people that you walk into a room and they bring light to a room. And I always got the impression Len was one of those. Yeah, he was. And he always had time. Uh, and he, he was just genuinely funny. And he would make 
wouldn't make it hard work. I mean, he was fantastic. very professional as well. Yeah, I, I thought it was amazing. But we're going to have another little break. When we come back, we're going to talk about your documentary that you made with Prince at the time, but now King Charles. So we'll be right back after this. Made locally in Bath. This is Radio Bath. Radio Bath. Right, we're back with Paul Lang. It's Richard Bowes on here until midday today. So we're going to talk about documentary that you made with, at the time, Prince, but now King Charles. So I believe it was called Inside the Duchy of Cornwall. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. I only got involved in a little bit of it, but as, as the way of these documentaries, they only allow certain people in. So most of it have been shot by uh, the director. He's also a very good camera, Charlie Clay. Uh, but they had a major interview to do up uh, at Balmoral, uh, and I got the call to fly up and do it. Going to say, how did you get involved with it? It's like you get the call, it effectively. Well, I knew I knew Charlie from before the director, and we had a good relationship. And uh, he said I was quite relaxed and unflappable, and that's what he wanted on the day. He didn't want, um, but you know, that's easier said than done. Uh, so yeah, Charlie asked if I'd do it, and I'm up for a challenge. So uh, off I went. So you said you flew in, as in you flew to near the area, or yeah, I think we flew We flew to Aberdeen. We stayed right. uh, in a hotel nearby. Uh, and you just slowly are winding yourself up because you think, oh, tomorrow I'm going to be uh, interviewing Prince Charles and he's not going to do things twice. And uh, you've only got one go at this. Even though it was me walking through, he planted a big forest in, uh, outside his, where he lived. And it's him talking about uh, the environment and everything else. Uh, but... For a period of it, I'd be the only one who'd be with him walking through the forest. So I was slightly nervous about that. I think it's sort of an odd thing to do. But yeah, slowly wound myself up all through the night. And then uh, we got the call to go to do it at about nine in the morning, all dressed up, drizzling. And we've got suits on and stuff uh, to be wandering around outside with Prince Charles. So what was the security like? Do you say you were by just with him, just you and him or? Yeah, I mean, if there was any security, we didn't see a lot of it. There was a little bit going in. We, who we obviously we all had to be vetted and everything else. Yeah. Uh, but when we got there, we just met um, uh, met the chap who was our liaison guy. Uh, we were told how we were to address him, um, and we just basically took it from there. Uh, it was the first sequence we had to do was him just walking through, walking over a river. And then I had to walk through the forest with him. And they said, you know, you know, just try and keep your distance and film him from a distance. But it's odd. I'm I, I'm a sort of I like to introduce myself to people. And I just thought, well, I can't just it'd be like stalking him. So, so I just went up and introduced myself and said hello. Um, I can't remember what I said. I, think. I don't know what are you supposed to address people? Uh, I think I said your highness, whether that was right or not, I don't know. And then said, sir, after that. But he was absolutely charming. I said, you know, I, I just thought I'd introduce you just in case you thought I was stalking you with a camera. But he, he couldn't have been any nicer. You know, he just sort of relaxed you. I said, oh, God, this is going to be all right. And so uh, did you have that scenario that, like, speak when you're spoken to? Or did you kind of just end up just chatting to him like two blokes walking along in a forest? Yeah, it was. It was. You did feel like, oh, speak when you're spoken to. But he really put you at ease. And because he's a Duke of Cornwall and I'm a Cornishman. Right. Uh, we, 
I, I had Cornish cufflinks on. And I said, sir, I think I'm the only Cornishman in the forest. And he laughed. Uh, but he, I think he's, you get him away from all the people. And he was absolute delight. And he spent time with us. He didn't rush. Uh, obviously, he's passionate what he was speaking about. He was speaking about the environment. Uh, and it was, uh, it's, it's great hearing when, when someone's speaking passionately about what they want to do, no matter who it is. Uh, but he genuinely cared and he just spent as much time with us as he wanted. There's lots of people that kind of discuss whether the royalty is um, the right thing and whether it shouldn't be there and are they better people than other people and all of that. And I suppose my view's always been as a, the position they're in, they can influence a lot of people to do things. Um, did you find that he he was able to do quite a lot more than you realised? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't really understand everything he has the power to do and everything else, but I just felt that he genuinely cared. He genuinely wanted to do things for people. Uh, and yeah, that's got to be a good thing, whether you're a prince or, or someone down the road. Yeah. Uh, I think he genuinely cared. Um, you know, I know a lot of people are not royal family. I'm not a royalist by any extent. But I just think when you meet someone who you think is genuine, then, you know, I don't care who they are. No, a genuine nice person is a genuine nice person. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's it's nice to hear that the uh, the head of the royal family, is, as he currently is now, um, yeah. is a nice person. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've got a hand interview on that. So. I did, I did, and it's sort of um, I only wish my my grandmother had been alive uh, when I uh, interviewed him. Uh, she would have um, she would have loved that. Uh, she <laughs> to think that her grandson was with Prince Charles. She would have absolutely loved that. Yeah, it's quite a strange thing to think about, isn't it? Do you kind of look back and just picture where you were and again have those smell the roses moments? Yeah, you do. I remember where we were. I remember how nervous I was. I mean, I I must have switched a camera on and off hundreds of thousands of times in my life. I did the sequence with him and then you got, did I turn the camera? Is it on? Did I have a recording? Yeah. Absolutely terrified. I don't remember the red light going on. Oh, my God. And you just panic. It's totally irrational. But because so much pressure is put on that moment, hmm. uh, you you just start doubting yourself. Think, did I get that info? Was, was, was it all right? And you just think, oh, God. Um, I've, I've had that a few times. You just sort of the, the lead up to something and there's so much put on it and it's very quick. And then you think, did I get that right? Um, it's always my... I don't know, but it was... It was it's always one of my biggest fears is that when you're recording something that you haven't pressed record. Um, in yeah. fact, I did have an example of that recently when I was doing some recording and I couldn't go back and redo it. Um, yeah. Did you have any moments recording with King Charles that kind of didn't quite go to plan and you had to redo? No, no. Thankfully, uh, when we were doing the main interview, I was walking backwards through a forest. I had the director guiding me. Um, but it, everything went fine. I expected going, you know, all over the place. But it was, everything went well. And I, I know that if we had messed up, he would have done it again. Yeah. He was, was no, the more we did it, the more we got relaxed. And I, I knew that he was sort of, he, he wanted to do it as much as we did. He wasn't just sort of put on the spot. I think it was his showcase of what he was doing. Uh, so I think if we'd said to him, look, we've got to do that all again, I think he would have done it. And I suppose that's the difference, isn't it? He's not recording something which he's been told or said, you really should do this. It was something he felt passionate about mm. himself. So it yeah. wasn't, you know, I assume he doesn't get paid for doing that type of thing, but it's just something he wanted to do. Yeah. And I know I know that I, I, I 
I don't think that Charlie had given him the questions before. So okay. quite, he was quite, um, he knew what the themes were going to be. But Charlie wasn't going to trip him up anyway. It was about the environment. He was never going to sort of go down any other road. Um, but it, like you, like you're doing, it just makes it more spontaneous. And uh, he was happy to do that. So yeah, no, I think it's much more of a as an interview. If you have that conversation, it, it feels more natural. So it's it's more fun as well. Um, so if you had to choose the most pressurized scenario, so you were in the Amazon, the slums, Iraq, or interviewing the King of England, which was the most pressurized? Oh, it's got to be doing Prince Charles on it. Okay. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, because you use all the other scenarios, you can, you know, you can possibly do things again. Uh, but yeah, having having one go at that in Balmar and the pressure that was put on it, it was the big interview for the whole series. And uh, yeah, I did feel that one a little bit. Well, you but, managed to do it, which is always a good thing. I did, gonna... I did manage to do it. Yeah. I might have had a lager after the end of it. <laughs> Just the one lager. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have another little break for music. And when we come back, we're going to change tact ever so slightly and talk about what you actually got up to during COVID. So uh, I'll be back after this. Made locally in Bath. This is Radio Bath. So we're back with Paul Lang. We're now going to talk about times during COVID. And Paul has written a book all about the fact that he went from being a cameraman to being a delivery driver. Um, now, for those that aren't aware, I'm a dance teacher and I actually had a very, very similar experience and I became a delivery driver too. So, Paul, the first thing I'm going to ask you is how did you feel when business effectively shut down overnight? Yeah, probably like you. You really felt like the rug was pulled under your feet and you think, I, I cannot sit at home for how long this is going to take penniless watching daytime telly i've got to do something uh so yeah like you um i took up delivery driving at tesco which uh was incredible i think it was a big turning point in my life funnily enough it, in what way that it was sort of apocalyptic at the beginning wasn't it it was the streets were empty it was like um you know danny boyle film hmm. uh people locked in and you're driving around delivering hobnobs and peanuts to people. I think this is just surreal. It is just surreal. I'm driving through sort of, um, you know, this sort of Hollywood set of empty streets and I'm delivering people shopping. And yeah. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I felt totally privileged to be doing it. Um, that I was allowed out. I was allowed to do a job. Uh, and I'd be the only people people would see week on end. Uh, especially when it was hot in that first summer, mm. I'd keep my distance, I'd drop the bags of, up the front and you just have chats with people and you knew they didn't want you to go because you're the only contact that they've had with anyone. Uh, and it was amazing, absolutely amazing. And all the things I've done as a documentary cameraman, I found that experience totally life-changing for me. You, sort of, you, you go to the other side of the world, you see this, you see that. It's all here in this country. You've got also I'd be delivering four crates of champagne to somebody during lockdown uh, for one person. Then I'd, my next delivery would be around the corner to housing estate and I'd be delivering crisps to somebody in a bucket. And you think this is just either ends of the spectrum. Some people going through lockdown with champagne and some people really hanging on by the skin of their teeth. And 
I just I felt humbled by it, totally humbled by it. Uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. How strange was it for you? Because, you know, as a filmmaker, it's going to be reasonably well paid, I would I would guess. And then being a delivery driver, it's it's not that well paid. Um, how did it feel when you kind of got your pay packet and you're like, oh, yeah, it's um, I'm not going to lie. It was a bit of a struggle, but it's I, I enjoyed the work so much. Uh, and I, I I put a little bit in my book about this. I remember getting a call. I was waiting for a delivery. It was first thing in the morning. My first delivery was 6.30 and I was waiting. And I had a call that time in the morning for someone asking me um, to do a filming job that had come up. I'm having to follow COVID rules and everything else. Uh, and they said, uh, oh, we won't tell them what you're doing now, just in case they ask. Uh, and I just felt like saying, well, why not? Um, this mm. is the first real work I've done all my life. I mean, I'm apart from the shipyard, it's such a privilege doing documentary work. I'm, I'm getting up at 4.30 in the morning delivering groceries. And they say, well, we won't tell anybody what you're doing now. Why not? Why this not? is proper life. And it, yeah. I just felt, I felt so detached from it all at that point. I thought, I don't want to be doing that anyway. And I love uh, the fact that it's all about perspective. So... I was doing the delivery drive into Star Wars and yeah, I had to be in at half past six in the morning to load the van up, ready to go out. I was delivering frozen food to old to the elderly people. I mean, again, they were the only, I was the only person they would see yeah. that week sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it was, yeah, you just have that chat with them from a distance and, and you know, you'd be the highlight of the day. Um, mm -hmm. I then started doing a bit more of the organization because as somebody that runs a business normally, I found it really weird to have a boss all mm -hmm. of a sudden that I found really strange. I was like, oh, if you could just do it like this, or maybe if you did it like this. And then they kind of got me involved in it a little bit more. And then I was getting up earlier and earlier to go in and help more and more. And then there was one day I thought, one day I just went back to doing the driving. And I thought, oh, I've got a lion. I'm now getting up at six o'clock in the morning. And I yeah. class that as a lion. Yeah. And that, so it's, again, all about perspective, isn't it? It is, it is about perspective. Yeah, well, it was, first of all, I'd worked for anybody for a long time. Mm. and gone through the selection process and everything. I mean, it, was, it was surreal. I stuck it all in my book. But my, my, my grandma had said to me that I should write a book about all my travels and whatever I've done with the camera, but I didn't didn't put pen to paper until I started driving for Tesco's. And I just yeah. wrote about it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was amazed. At the risk, all the money goes to uh, hospice in Plymouth, but it just, uh, it all took off and uh, got published in the Sunday Times and all sorts of stuff. Gonna say it's um I was looking and there's loads of different adverts about it everywhere. Yeah, it uh, just uh it just took me by surprise really. Um but there you go, it's still out there, it's still dribbling away. Um but yeah, still waiting for uh, Kevin Costa to play me in the film version. But uh we <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm waiting for Brad Pitt to play yeah. in mine as well. So <laughs> But I, I love I love the delivery driving. And a real mix of people I was working with, taxi drivers, because um, a lot of the people from the arts were out of work. I was working yeah. with uh, a trombone player from uh, Les Miserables, uh, lots of actors, um, a real mix of people. And uh, it was just, it was a real sense of, right, let's do something. Like you, when you, when you, you know, you could have sat home, but you did that. And it, I think mm. it's, it's, uh, it was something I'm very proud of, not thinking I'll oh, look at me doing a, a low pay job. It wasn't that. So I'm proud, more proud of the people I was with that were all sort of trying to trying to get people through it.
did you do that classic question of what's your normal job oh yeah yeah i had uh, all that uh you know when when's real work coming back was always a question I think well you know this, you, don't get me wrong this is real work and, yeah uh, what it's what turned me around really it's why i didn't really want to go back to filming i, I was going to ask that actually so you know you were asked during when you were doing your delivery driving you know here's another project um have you hung up your your camera for good yeah i i, I think i have uh, i'll still do bits and pieces somebody asked me to do something for charity or you know if my partner wants me to do something i will but i don't i don't miss it i miss the people i miss the people i interview but i don't miss the whole tv side of it and it was it's gone down a different way now it's not you know 35 years ago at the bbc anymore uh so and i love what i'm doing now i love the community side of it and um it's i still get it now so oh, what did you used to do and mm. you know I'm, I'm i'm working with all sorts of people i'm working with sort of a physics engineer now and all sorts of people but it was the same with tesco's that uh, all sorts of people and all walks of life and that's what i like about it and would you go back to delivery driving if you had to uh, no, <laughs> it was hopefully what I'm doing now will see me out. But um, no, actually, would I? I'm I, I'm I would maybe think about it. But well, you know, it's hard work. It it is really hard work, actually. Um, certainly that first uh, the April to June time when it was boiling hot, our our vans were not air conditioned, no. and we were doing ten twelve hour days because. You know, we were really busy because we were the only things that could supply people food. So yeah. we were doing, we were maxed out and doing loads and loads of stuff. Um, yeah. And it was long, hard days. And I have full respect for everybody that does it. Um, yeah. I wouldn't I, want to do it again. No, um, I, I remember coming home from work during uh, the hot time we had there. And I've been delivering up flats in Notting Hill. Crates of water is all people wanted at the time. Hmm. Crates of it. And I just remember coming out absolutely exhausted. And I remember saying to Lou, this is the hardest day work I've ever done in my life. Yeah. I just hold my hand up to all those people who do that day in, day out. Just think that they, they should be respected. You know, everyone out and clapped all the key workers and everything, but they should go and clap them every bloody Thursday. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, you just, you take it for granted. And it's just, you know, uh, and it's funny because on, on when I'm out and about now, I see the old Tesco van go past and I recognise the drivers and I always wave at them. It's yeah. like, why is the policeman waving at me? <laughs> I also ended up in the call centre a little bit as well. Oh, did you, um, did yeah, you? so I had it all set up at home and uh, yeah, so the days I wasn't delivery driving, I would also do the call centre. Some days I'd do a bit of both. Um, <laughs> so yeah, my, I, was, I got right into my telephone voice. Uh, did thing. you? Did you? I'm glad yeah. I didn't live at the call center in Tesco. That would have been too stressful. Yeah, and that was it was quite stressful at times. Yeah, um, you're trying to do a variety of different things, and and again, the I think the strange thing that we had back in those days is that normally, you know, the, the company I worked for has amazing organization, and if you do that job, you go out for a month beforehand and you sit with somebody and you train mm. and you learn how to do it all. I went out. I, you know, they needed people. I was mm. available. I did it, and mm. you just kind of learn on the job. Mm. Um, but they, you know, they they trained me very well in the end. Um, yeah. But it was really difficult to start with because you're just kind of making it up as you go along. Yeah, um, yeah, you do. You do. You're right. I just 
yeah I, 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 looking back on it I, it was i did enjoy it and a hell of an experience yes i think um, we both look back on it with fond memories but both happy not to do it again yeah it was hard work that's especially at my age <laughs> indeed um <laughs> So we're going to come back. We're going to come back. Nobody gets away with a quick fire round. So, uh, so yeah, we're going to come back after the break with Paul for the quick fire round after this. Locally made. This is Radio Bath. Right, it's time for the last link then with Paul, and it's the quick fire round. Everybody's always really nervous about this round. How do you feel about it, Paul? Yeah, everybody's nervous. So am I. Uh, how quick do I have to be with the quick fire round? You don't have to be that quick. It's still <laughs> yeah. relaxed. They're just quick questions. It's nothing oh, okay. that big. You'll be fine. I promise you that. Right. Yeah. Here's the first question. Everybody gets to know the first question, but the rest of them, they don't get to know. So what is your favorite ice cream? Uh, it's got to be uh, just Cornish vanilla. Cornish vanilla from a Cornish man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Are you tidy or messy? Tidy. Tidy. Is yeah. that what your partner will tell you? Yeah, when I was a caravan, my boxes had to be lined up at the departure gate. They couldn't be messy. Do you know what? Um, I have a, a lighting engineer that works for me as well as a DJ. And whenever he packs up the DJ in box at the end of the night, it's like a work of art. <laughs> yeah. It really is. Every yeah. cable is just beautifully placed in there. When I do it, just like yeah. a jumble. Can't do it. No, nothing like a messy cable. I'm with him all the way on that one. It's got to be yeah. cold. Enough, probably. He's very good. Uh, love or hate roller coasters? uh love it i'm a bit of a thrill seeker very good when did you last go uh god i haven't been on a roller coaster for ages but i do remember seeing one with all the twists and turns going yeah i'll have a go there i've uh, just been to thorpe park actually and i i have the simple trick of taking a travel sickness pill and therefore <laughs> i feel okay and i i went and didn't feel sick once so yeah. uh yeah, I used to be a bit of a thrill seeker when I was younger. As I've got older, I've, it's it's worn off a bit. I used to bungee jump and all that nonsense. Oh, did you? Okay, where well, did you bungee jump then? New Zealand. Okay. Yeah. So I, yeah. I committed last month um, when I was interviewing the children's hospice that next year, which is my 50th birthday year, that I'm going to do a skydive for their charity. Good lad. So, uh, and I hate heights. I'm XRAF. But, yeah. <laughs> but, oh, brilliant. So, so yeah we'll see uh do you hang your toilet roll over the top or behind the back oh over the top every time yeah don't ask amazed. me why don't ask me why but if i see it the other way around i will turn it around will you if you go to somebody else's house no 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 i'm not going to somebody's turn house. around no i don't well why do i do that i don't know i don't know I, just... I generally have i've i've gone to somebody's house round the wrong way which is round the back for me and i've yeah. turned it round yeah, yeah. That's, um, but that's the world i live in um do you eat your chocolate if you like chocolate do you eat your chocolate from the fridge or from the cupboard oh uh fridge fridge why uh it's got to be a bit crunchy and cold and not melting away yeah I, i'm with you on that <laughs> one uh do you make your bed in the morning uh if i'm the last up, then yes. If okay. I'm on an early shift, no, because I leave at four thirty in the morning. Fair um, enough. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good around the house. Should we say? Okay. And are there follow-up question to that? Are there any cushions on your bed outside of the pillows? No, there. Oh. Controversially, there are two cushions behind the pillows. Okay. Which get taken off and put on the floor before you go to bed. 
Well, that's the same principle. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I'm still yet to understand why. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> they get put there. You leave the room. You come back yeah. in the room. You take them off. I know. Just a trip hazard on the floor. Um, what is your favourite breakfast? Uh, oh. See, it could be full English or it could be the smoothie I had this morning. Oh, tell me about your smoothie this morning then. Uh, uh, oat milk, two raw eggs, um, peanut butter, dates, banana and blueberries. Sounds amazing. I might get the recipe off you. Yeah. It's it's a bucket of sludge, but it's fantastic. That sounds really nice, really nice. Um, now, there's no pressure on you for this next one, but Mary, you mm. know, she did this, and she did it very well, and she's the only person in all of the interviews I've done to have done this next part. Okay, so the first part of this question is, if you had to, what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, my God. Uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, Folsom Prison Blues. Okay, and therefore you now know what the follow-up question will be to that. Are you oh. going to give us a rendition now? Uh, <laughs> you don't have to. Put me on the spot. <laughs> I'm a terrible singer. That's okay. You don't have to. But Mary, well, all of a sudden, Mary burst out into song. I'm like, oh, somebody's done uh, it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to subject your viewers to my dulcet Cornish tones <laughs> trying to do Johnny Cash. Uh, <laughs> Right, now this next one would be really difficult for you, okay? Do you have a favourite TV programme or film? It doesn't have to be one you've worked on. Uh, yes. My favourite film is Sean Connery, Michael Caine, The Man Who Would Be King. Okay, why? Uh, I just love it. I just love the adventure. I just love where it's set. Uh, it it's reminds me of my brother. We both love the film. Uh it's just something about it. It's it's just an old ripping yarn, and I love it. It's absolutely fantastic. I can also I list another twenty films I absolutely love, but the Manny would be king. If it if it's on the telly and I'll say I'll watch five minutes, I'll watch the whole thing. Can I be honest? I've never seen or heard of it, but I'm going to watch it post this interview. John Huston directed it. It's it's uh, Michael Caine's wife is in it, Shakira. It's it's stunning. It's a Rudyard Kipling story. Right. I will yeah. uh, absolutely go and watch that. Mm -hmm. And your last question then, Paul, is if you came back in your next life as an animal, which one would you be and why? <laughs> uh, I'd like to come back uh, as a dog. Okay. Yeah, I would. Uh, have you read Fluke? I haven't, no. It's a man who comes back as a dog. I've read it okay. again. And uh, yeah, I'd my dog's got a pretty good life. I think, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'd quite like to be Millie, I think. You'd like to be Millie. Well, yeah, Millie's... she's got very little to worry about. And she's she's been under the desk all of this interview, and she's not not made a sound. No, she is. She is here. She's a bit forlorn because she just had a haircut. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. I hope you've enjoyed it. I have, I have, and I, I hope I haven't blathered or uh, the, the sound of people turning off in their droves. It's been uh, really interesting. You've been, you've been great. Absolutely, you've, you're very kind. Um, genuinely, at Radio Bath, we love chatting to people like yourself, and uh, we've really enjoyed it. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on, and we hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, much appreciated, Richard. Thank you very much. Thank you.